Hello and welcome to Off the Record. It's been a while. Uh, as you could probably tell, I've been a little bit more concentrated on my other podcast, Noise Prayers, but I still have ideas and plans for this that I want to carry out and I want to do. So, with that, this isn't one of them. Uh, this is an interview I did for Noise Careers that I think you would really like. So I'm putting an excerpt of it, but what you should do is you should go over and subscribe to Noise Creators if you like what you hear of this, or just go over there now and listen to this podcast, which is with Riley Breckenridge of Thrice. Uh, this is just an excerpt of the full interview I did with him, but we discuss a lot of cool stuff, including how their band got to be great. I'm going to be doing more interviews like this for both Noise Creators and for Off the Record. In fact, I'm taping one today. And because of that, uh, stay tuned to this podcast, please. I appreciate you having patience. And as well, head on over to Noise Creators and click subscribe if you like this, because I'm going to be doing way more like this over there. Thank you and enjoy. So this morning you guys put up your new song from uh, your new record, and I have to say it's sounding awesome. Can you tell us a little about what went into the new record? It was a pretty unique writing process this time around. Um, in the past, the four of us were all living in the same city, and you know we'd hole up in our rehearsal space, kind of treat it like a nine-to-five job Monday through Friday, and just jam and jam and jam and jam. And because of geography and scheduling, Tepe lives or lived up in Seattle when we were writing this record. We didn't have the opportunity to, to do that around the one-offs that we were doing, like the festival dates last year. Um, we'd have Tepe fly in a little bit early. And as we were rehearsing for those shows, we'd kind of schedule some writing sessions. But most of the writing was done online just through file sharing and building logic files and passing those sessions back and forth. And then we used, a, I think it's like, I guess it's best described as a productivity app. It's a Asana. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So we used that. Um, we're using it for everything band related basically now, which is nice because you don't have to dig through a ton of emails. And But we would build you know songs as tasks and then just kind of open up dialogue the same way that we would if we were all in the same room, but we do it in kind of a message board format. So it's like, how do you feel about this verse? How do you feel about this chorus? Here's an idea I have. So it was unique in that regard. I tend to prefer the jamming stuff out method of writing, but we just couldn't do that this time around. And you know, things turned out pretty damn good. And I, I'm happy with, with what we were able to do, given our geographical constraints. No, that's really interesting. It seems like a lot of bands are shifting towards that as, you know, the internet unites people from further away. This is like, and technology, it's something that becomes possible. And, uh, you know, I did an interview with this band called Publicist UK on Relapse, and they had never even sat in a room together, even recording their record. And, oh, wow. And they just did it all via communication and demos and uh, you know who's a, a funny thing and you know they're all veteran guys so they could get away with it and obviously this is not how you would have wanted to do your first record i imagine <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when you say jamming out was it always a thing of somebody would just bring a riff or would somebody have a demo in the past and then you guys would jam the demo or something what what was the normal collaborative process in the past for records we'd set up like dropbox and people would just start dropping song clips in there, whether it was like a voice memo of a guitar part or a fully realized Logic or GarageBand demo. And 
we'd share those parts. And then when we began the writing process, we'd sit down and open up those Dropbox files and kind of rate the ideas that we had. Like, mm. uh, I think this will work. I think that'll work. And then we would focus on those highest rated ideas and then try to combine them to build songs out of them. It's very rare that we ever have somebody come to the table with a, a full song done. There were a couple instances on this record where Dustin had some songs that were pretty close to being finished. That was different. But yeah, it's just a, it's always been a lot of idea sharing and then it's just mixing and matching and trying to figure out which parts work together. So then we jam on a part going into another part and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And then the songs would just kind of develop from there. And then all of the jamming stuff out would be as these songs get built out, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, outro, intro, whatever, just trying to get them to a place where we feel comfortable playing them and that they have good energy when we're in the same room together. And yeah, it's kind of how we did it. Nice. So you guys did this new record with Eric Palmquist. Is that correct? Yes. And so can you tell me about that process? Yeah, it was cool. It's the first time that we've worked with a an actual producer since Visu. Because mm. we did we did the Alchemy Index on our own. Mm-hmm. Tepe did the the engineering and we kind of self-produced that. And then you guys would just have mixers every once in a while on some of them? Yeah, I think um, Tepe mixed a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I, I looked through the credits and it said some of David Sh- Dave Schiffman was on maybe um, major minor, minor major. Yeah, Schiffman was kind of like an engineer slash mixer slash kind of producer. I mean, he was he wasn't giving us a lot of creative input. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd tell if, us if he thought something sucked or mm-hmm. if he thought something was cool, but he wasn't involved in in much of the pre production like writing sessions. Yes. Um, so working with Eric this time, Eric was a lot more involved. I think it was easy for him to be involved because of the nature of our writing of this record, because mm-hmm. we were doing it all virtually. We just, you know, looped him in on all the the conversations about parts and songs. So it was cool to have an extra set of ears. It was a good experience. He's a really easy guy to work with. And I, I'm glad that he was easy to work with, because if we would have chosen a producer that beat us up or made the recording environment toxic, I think it would have been pretty disheartening, especially since we'd done things ourselves in the past. We'd just be like, oh, man, we should have just done this ourselves. So what was the decision after doing it on your own for so long to go with a producer? Well, I I think one big thing was we don't have the studio that we used to have Mm. anymore. When Tepe moved up to Seattle, he sold the house that we built the studio in. Mm. So that wasn't an option. I guess we could have chosen another studio but Tepe, you know, during the hiatus, he didn't really touch a guitar or think about mixing or engineering or recording at all. So we wanted somebody who could best help us develop our ideas. And I think we needed an editor because we'd kind of been out of the game for as long as we had, you know, five mm-hmm. years, four years. We felt like we needed an extra set of ears. And I mean, we met with Eric once and we we're like, this is going to work, I think. This wow. is going to definitely going to work. And had there been a lot of other meetings or was he really the main one? Uh, We had talked about other people. There were budget constraints and he, you know, he worked very well uh, within our budget and just the vibe was good. He understood, you know, what we had done in the past. It wasn't like we were begging him to make the record. He Mm -hmm. was really excited to do it. Mm. And that was a good feeling to have, you know, probably could have gone through a ton of producers that were like, oh man, it'd be such a a dream come true to work with like 
Dave Sardi or something. Yeah, but like, yeah. What if Dave Sardi hates thrice mm-hmm. and doesn't want to do it and we have to convince him to do it? So, No, I, I think that you make a great point, too, that I don't think a lot of people get when they're choosing a producer is that, you know, you could get this person who's done all these records you love, but if they're not super enthused about your band, that might not be the best time for to work with them. Definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. And so what was the process like? Like how long did it take you guys to do it and all that? We were in the studio for six weeks, mm. I think. Did the got sounds for the first couple of days, did drums in about four days, I think. And then we went basically went song by song and built them out with, you know, guitars, bass, and then you know, keys and all kinds of other stuff. We really we went pretty heavy on the uh, additional instrumentation on this record, which was cool. It was fun to have time to experiment. And Eric was totally open to that, which was awesome. That's a, so, so, that, so that leads me to my next question is, so you guys have had such a interesting fleshing out of your, as you guys moved along, going from just a guitar, bass, drums, vocal type of band, uh, what, what do we expect from this one? If you can give us some hints. It's kind of all over the place. There are some nods to Visu in there for sure. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on some of the Alchemy Index records. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on Beggars or Major Minor. Mm. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on uh, Artists in the Ambulance even. But it's also moved forward. There's like, I think there's a, a maturity in the in the songwriting and the, the playing that we might not have had in the past. And then, like I said, having Eric in the mix to say, hey, this is not working or, hey, this is a great idea. Let's build on this. Like, I don't think you need to overthink this was great because we we have a tendency to edit ourselves almost to a, a fault. I think we we've beaten the, the shit out of some songs to the point where we hate recording them and then they don't end up making it on a record. Hmm. So was that something that was always present in the band or did you guys just as you became better songwriters, it just became that thing of you were had so many options of how you could edit and then it kind of started to be a paralysis or was it something that you always had inherited in you guys? I think we always had it. Mm. We don't we're not the most confident band. <laughs> really? Individually. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we're not the kind of band that like walks off stage after a show and it's like, fuck yeah, man, we nailed that. That was so sick. Like it's usually like, Oh man, I screwed up this part or, Oh, I forgot the lyrics here. Or like, Oh, I totally botched this fill. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Kind of hypercritical to a fault sometimes. Cause people are like, do you ever get excited about <laughs> something that you do? And it's like, yeah, I'm excited about it, but none of us are braggadocious. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's one of the, the underestimated parts of being like very good at creativity is that like one of the things that I see over and over again with the best creators I've worked with is like we beat the hell out of ourselves all the time. And that's what gets us better and better and better and keeps us being challenged because we're just like never that stoked on anything because we just hear the flaws. Right. Yeah. I was talking actually with the singer of this side project that I'm doing mm-hmm. uh, called, called Less Art. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. His name is Mike Minnick, and he was in a band called Curl Up and Die, and he was just talking to me about the new record. And I was like, yeah, it's always a, a weird process where I go through phases of like, oh, man, I love this. I'm really, really psyched on this. And then I listen to it another day, and I'm like, oh, man, this is not what I wanted it to be. Or like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> and, it, and it goes back and forth. It goes back and forth in waves. And I, th- I, I was talking to him about it and saying, like, it's because with art or music – Nothing is ever really finished. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can always change stuff. You can always do something different. 
And it's such a challenge for me and for him personally to just put something to rest and say, you know what, that's good enough. That's as good as, as it's going to get. I don't need to beat this to death. Yeah, it, it is. To, like, I, I always say that um, the first month, I'm usually happy with it. Then the second month, I'm miserable. And if it comes on in a bar or something and I hear mm-hmm. the record, I want to kill myself. And I like look like I'm having a psychotic breakdown as I run to the bathroom till the song ends. And then <laughs> for the next six months to two years, I, can, I will run from that song. And then like two years later, I'll hear it. I'll be like, this sounds great. I don't hear any flaws. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a it's a weird wave of uh what you can do to improve and when uh you're going to hear the flaws and when you uh just accept like that's who I was at that time. Yeah. And I mean the the options are are endless and then you get into like you said option paralysis and like I feel like I'd be a terrible mixer. Mm. It's just like there are so many things that you could do and how do you how do you put it to bed? How do you say that this is good enough? Yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm never going to get into mixing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so I'd love to go through kind of how you guys became you to this day, if we can. When the band formed, was there any idea behind the band that you first formed? Or was it just kind of like, I like these guys, let's jam together? It was, Ed is my brother, and he likes Tepe and Dustin uh, because they had hung out a bunch through like skateboarding and stuff and were into the same kind of music. Early on, it was very much, we like... You know, the Epitaph and Fat Records bands of the mid to late 90s. And we love Iron Maiden and we love Metallica Hmm. and we love Slayer and we love hardcore. So we're like, let's just write songs that have a little bit of all of that stuff in it. So was calling the first record Identity Crisis a reflection of that that wasn't a common thing to be into at that time? (laughs) Yeah, it was a very on the nose. (laughs) We're having an identity crisis. And when we were trying to get signed by labels, we got a lot of responses that were like, you guys need to figure out what the hell you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, this is all over the place. Like, do you, are you singing? Are you screaming? Do you want to be a metal band? Do you want to be a punk band? Do you want to be a hardcore band? Like, figure that out and send us something. And it's like, oh, no, we're just going to do what we want to do. That's a, interesting because, yeah, I like one of the things um, I'm very much a believer in is like, while you can get feedback from people, you have to just keep doing what makes you happy. And maybe you just get better at that. And that is what it seemed like. The next record, The uh, Illusion of Safety, seemed to be like, that was you guys just getting better at that sound. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, th- I think the scope of bands that we were listening to started to expand a little bit. It was like less West Coast and like global metal and more we started to get into a lot of the East Coast stuff. So East Coast, what would be the examples of that? Cave In, Converge, mm. I don't know, Engine Down. Mm. A lot of the bands that Brian McTernan had recorded, Hot Water Music. He just started sharing a lot of music with us, and we were like, whoa, this is awesome. So Um, you had done the first record locally, and then you went to Brian for uh, The Illusion of Safety. Is that correct? Yeah. Identity Crisis was done with Paul Miner, who was the bass player in Death by Stereo and still records bands. Um, And then we did Illusion of Safety with McTernan, and that was like a three-week session at his studio in Beltsville. Mm -hmm. Which was just like a house uh, at the time, right? Yeah, he had like a detached garage that he had built a, a studio in and we stayed in like the the basement of his house and just out there for three weeks. And it was a an incredible experience. It was really tough because we had never had somebody criticize what we had done. You know, mm. Paul Miner was just like, let's throw up some mics and record these songs. It was just like a very well recorded demo kind mm-hmm. of. But McTernan was like, dude, you can't 
that you can't play that. It sounds horrible. <laughs> or like, why are you singing like that? Or why are your lyrics like this? Or the guitar part sucks. You know, he's very, very open and honest and critical. And I think it was really important for us to hear that at, mm. at that point in time, because we were starting to get some confidence in what we were doing, but we needed somebody to kind of knock us down a peg and think about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And um, he taught us more in those three weeks than I think all the producers combined have taught us. Wow, that's really. I mean, Brian is by far one of the most talented producers I've ever known, and that record, you know, I can remember. Um, I worked for Alan Douches, who mastered it at the time, and yeah. I can remember I ran it off at the end of the night, and you know, I'd have, it was my job to listen to the records as they went down and make sure there's no digital glitches because DAWs were so unstable back then. And uh, I then I think spent the next three months every night when I'd have a break just putting that on headphones because I couldn't take it home, but I could hit it play on it on another computer and be allowed to do at work and just being <laughs> blown away by what you guys have done and you know it's so funny now because like bands really don't think that they can do a monumental record in three weeks was there a lot of preparation that you guys had done to be able to pull off something like that or is it more just brian's pace at the time you know we had been writing doing the kind of like nine to five jam thing or the after work jam thing so that had been uh, going on a long time that you guys kind of had this nine to five regimen or your every day after work regimen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we recorded some demos for him after he had signed on to, to do the record and they were recorded so, so, so bad. <laughs> like I can't even remember what we recorded with like some crappy four track or something, but they were all blown out and distorted and all of Dustin's vocals sounded like he was John Henry from Darkest Hour. <laughs> I think McTurner wanted to work with us because he wanted to work with a, a heavier band that wasn't like a metal band. Mm. And then he got those demos and was like, oh, man, I don't think this is what I want to do. <laughs> I don't think I, this is not what I signed up for. These are totally this is like brutal metal hardcore stuff. So he freaked out a little bit. Eventually, we talked him off the ledge and he agreed to to do it. But <laughs> So obviously with that record, that record took off. And for an indie record, that was definitely one of the bigger successes of the time. I imagine you guys got a lot of smoke blown up your ass. What did you guys do to stay so grounded and then just make another great record uh, after that? Was there any like philosophies that you had to take into account when the whole world is telling you you're changing music and you're the next Nirvana? Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming. And it kind of goes back to like what I was saying about us not being super confident mm -hmm. as, as people. We didn't really believe any of the, the smoke that was getting blown up our asses, you know. So that record started to sell well. Shows started selling out. We were getting on good tours. And then major labels started sniffing around. And that was like a good time in music where there was a lot of money to yes. be thrown around. So it was... We're on tour with Anti-Flag, but we're going out to dinner with this guy from like Atlantic and he's spending a shit ton of money buying us really nice dinners and t telling us how great we are. And we're just like, man, that was so weird. Like, <laughs> I don't didn't believe a word of it. We never really valued any of that smoke blowing. You know, I, I could see other bands maybe being like, yeah, we are awesome. We yeah. are the, one of the best fucking bands on earth. This is killer. <laughs> we're going to take over the world. But that's just not how we operate. So that was it was a really, really crazy period because it happened very we were working our asses off and touring like crazy and 
driving around in a shitty van and we were exhausted, but there was just so much stuff, so much crazy stuff happening that it was almost too much to process. Or no, I imagine it's very hard to consider that the, the, the scope of what people are telling you you could be and your potential when you're like, I don't know, I was just making a record in three weeks in some guy's garage. It wasn't in uh, like Radiohead in a, the world's best studios working uh, all day. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the most important thing to us was being on tour, putting on good shows and having fun with the the dudes that we were on tour with. Like we weren't trying to, to push ahead this juggernaut or try to meet with this guy and that guy from this and that label. We just wanted to have fun on tour and it kind of got a little distracting for a while. Like just having to you know we were very lucky to um be in that situation but i was like man can we just like go to dinner with the guys from anti-flag or go to <laughs> dinner with the guys from hot water music i don't want to go out with so and so that's funny yeah so you guys end up going back to brian so michael barriero guns and roses appetite for destruction uh, mixer is that correct yes and hold a bunch of other things that he did did he do some metallica too he did. I think he did Injustice for yes. All or Ride the Lightning, maybe. Yes, I think you're correct. So you basically bring him in to do some of the engineering, but stay with McTurnan. What was the ideas behind that? Uh, we really liked working with Brian. He taught us a lot. And we knew that we were going to have a bit bigger budget and wanted Brian to be a part of that jump to the, to the next level. Because, I, I mean... Beyond being an amazing producer, Brian's just an amazing person. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we loved having him around. We loved the input that he gave, even though he was hard on us. We felt like we needed that, especially with making you know a major label debut and bringing Michael in. He was familiar with the room at Bearsville that we recorded drums in. And because we could afford it, we wanted to take some pressure off of Brian and keep Brian more on the, the producer side. Mm hmm. And it ended up being awesome. I mean, some of the stuff that, that Barbiero did was incredible, miking up that, that drum room at Bearsville, which is like a high school gymnasium, basically. Yeah. I, I've been up there a couple of times for some records to work on, and it is just, it was a ridiculous place. Yeah. You see photos online, and then, like, I remember walking into that room and my jaw just hitting the floor and being like, holy shit, this is incredible. But uh, it was re really, really cool experience uh, being up there. It was like, in the middle of winter, it was snowing. Just a really cool vibe uh, for creating music. But on the other hand, we were given a very small window mm. in which to write that record. Mm. We were given about three months after we were done touring, which was not enough for us. Which was, so, <laughs> so that's funny because, you know, many bands these days with the touring schedules, it's like you get those 30 days and those 30 days include your week to decompress from tour. When you say that was small, how long was it taking you guys to write the previous two records? Kind of spread out over like a year, I guess. We weren't, weren't writing in like really focused periods of time. It was just like, let's get together three days a week or something. And we'll write a song or two songs. And then we just did that for a year because we weren't really touring full time. Mm -hmm. But this one, it was like, we didn't have a lot of ideas in the can or in the, you know, in the song pool. And we had three months to write and R Brian was flying out for pre-production stuff. And I remember it just being really, really stressful, mm. really stressful, not only because of the pressure of the major label thing, but just because we weren't ready to make the next record hmm. and we knew we knew it was very important we didn't have the number of parts that we felt like we needed and 
there were a lot of things that we wanted to do because the the scope of music that we were listening to was expanding like, dramatically. It's amazing how much more music you listen to when you're in a van for eight months. Oh yeah, I mean, out of the year. <laughs> I, I I think that 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 is. There's two things you're like kind of hitting on here is that you know like when people normally refer to like you know the sophomore slump, it's like you had your whole life to write your first record. It's like. Well, there was also the thing of like, I didn't have the pressure of being on tour for fucking ever. And then I had that whole year to write. And then there's a very big difference between the first time you're on tour forever. And then also that when you're on tour forever, you're hearing a lot of music. Yeah, totally. So so what was the scope of what you guys were getting into at the time? Do you remember? It was like Cave-In, Jupiter, oh, Radiohead, yeah, so Kid A, or some Bjork records. I know mm. I'm going to leave a ton out, but it was yeah. stuff that was like more atmospheric and more ambitious and incorporating like electronics and heavy bands that were doing heavy in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. I don't know, stuff like Botch too. Yes. Um, great. And we want we wanted to apply those those influences, but we were we didn't have the time to kind of work how we were going to do that out. So you're looking back on this and you're saying, wow, we could have done this better. But so many people look at that record as like a real apex of the genre of like, this is the genre being done really well. Yeah, it's weird that <laughs> it worked out like that. Yeah. So one of the things, though, that is noticeable, though, is like the harmonies definitely got bigger. Was there anything that was attributable to that since that's not really Botch or uh, Caven? I guess maybe that's a, a nod to Dustin's pop leanings. Mm. And then for the other guys, maybe, you know, stuff like Bad Religion and like a lot of the the uh, the Fat Wreck bands like did a lot of vocal harmony stuff, yes. um, which was something that we had on the the previous two records, but. Yeah, it did seem to just get bigger and better, which I think that that record yeah. seemed to be a lot of is just, you know, kind of getting that formula even better, better executed. Yeah. And, you know, having eight weeks mm. to, to make a record and doing it with a guy like Michael Barbiero uh, engineering and having that time and the budget to, to really make a big rock record, you can make a big rock record. Yeah. So were you guys up at Bearsville the whole entire time for those eight weeks with Barbiero or was it like a little bit of different things? No, we did. uh, I think we did two, two weeks at Bearsville. We did drums and maybe a little bit of bass there. Mm -hmm. And then for the next six weeks, we went back to Beltsville to Brian's studio and did guitars and we did strings and vocals and harmonies and all that kind of stuff but we definitely had a lot of time it was obviously the most time we've ever had to to make a record and the most the biggest budget we'd ever had Mm. Um, but we found a way to use most of most of it (laughs) (laughs) you always do (laughs) yeah i i tweeted something about that after we made this record it's like no matter how much time Mm -hmm. you set aside you will always be working until like the very last second that you have there's a term for it uh parkinson's parkinson's law (laughs) <laughs> um, it's uh like it is time will expand to whatever you make it expand to it's yeah. just that that is how it goes so you guys have even more success with that record but then the next record you cho- choose to do the you know as some people would call it the kid a move of like you know i think it's always a hard thing for music fans to understand that you know, you're kind of at this war as a musician of like, well, we could just do what's been working or we could do where our heart is. Was there any thought behind what went into VSU? 
Yeah, I, I I think that was a I mean, it was a career defining record for us. And I think it was it was a huge risk to take. And I think if we hadn't taken that risk, we wouldn't be around. I, uh, I, I think I agree as well. I, yeah. I also think it's that you guys pulled it off well, which I think a lot of bands don't do. Was there any particular thought you guys had about making that jump that you think maybe it may have helped the that record be as still sounding like thrice while still being very adventurous? The label wanted us to do the, uh, okay, you've got, you're done touring. You got three weeks. Let's do exactly what we did for artist in the ambulance. Like, <laughs> let's just keep this rolling. Cops. And we, we were so miserable during the writing process of artist in the ambulance, just because of time constraints and not getting to incorporate everything we wanted to incorporate. We put our foot down really hard and we're like, we're going to take as much time as we need to write this record and make it be the record that we want, want it to be because the scope of bands that we were listening to was expanding further. So we had more more stuff that we wanted to to try out. And then when it came down to choosing a producer, that was another battle with the label where we put our foot down and it was hugely influential on the way that record ended up sounding. So that record's with Dave Shipman Engineering and you guys. That's it for this excerpt. Head over to Noise Creators to hear the rest.